trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out to the sponsors who make this program possible Monday through Friday. It's MonticelloCollege.org. You want to talk about an education for our time, a place where new American founders are being created? Yep, that's the place. There's a link there in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I would encourage you to check them out for yourself. Also, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and lifesavingfood.com. Food storage has always been a good idea, but it's looking like a really, really powerfully good idea right about now. And I have links to all of these sponsors, again, at thebrianheidshow.com. So, where to begin today? I think I want to start with something that, uh, this is a little bit chilling, but it's something that we ought to be aware of because you won't hear much about this through traditional uh, corporate media sources. And that is looking at the, the World Economic Forum and just some of the things that its uh, mucky mucks have in mind. They're looking at, uh, you know, a, the Great Reset. I believe they're the ones who actually coined the phrase. That's where we get the phrase, you'll own nothing and like it. But there's a video that they have released, and I've got a link to it, that I hope you'll check out. When you consider how much has changed in the last 18 months, how many of those changes, how many of the things that are now you know part of the new normal, whether it's masking, social distancing, vaccines, mandates, you know, all the different protocols, the plexiglass shields, all of that, how many of those changes do you wish could be permanent in nature? Well, before you answer, take a look at a very interesting two-minute video from the World Economic Forum. It's titled, How Our Lives Could Soon Look. And I'm just going gonna, gonna to walk you through this video, even though um, you will only hear the audio for it. It has some nice little, uh, little titles and, and captions that go with it. And, it, I mean, this is not, this is not published as, as a scary thing. It's not like, oh, we're coming for you, you know, with the, the evil glee of some maniacal dictator. This is how they see the future. This is the, the upside of what they think at the economic, World Economic Forum that the future could hold. In fact, they can hardly contain their excitement. There are advantages, there are opportunities, you know, that are, there are inherent in this. They are the ones who posted a title back in January about what is the Great Reset, which basically acknowledges that this pandemic is being used to bring about a new social and economic order. And it's making fun of those who predicted, you know, what would happen. About a month later, the World Economic Forum posted another video titled Lockdowns Are Quietly Improving Cities Across the World, which was nothing less than insane. Now, they eventually deleted that video, but it doesn't mean they don't believe it. Needless to say, a lot of folks, at least those who are paying attention, don't really like these videos. They're disgusted by them. 99.85% of the comments express utter disgust. They're downvoted on YouTube. 
But more absurdity has just landed, and on August 17th, the World Economic Forum posted a video titled, This is How Our Lives Would Soon Look. And it looks like the trailer of a dystopian horror movie where people are treated like dehumanized cattle. So from the World Economic Forum, this is directly from the source, this is how our lives could soon look. Take a peek at the future. And it talks about five ways the pandemic could reshape our lives. Number one, offices will be reimagined. The shift to home working will mean offices can serve different functions. They could be used as a client showroom, a research lab, or somewhere to meet and reconnect with colleagues. Number two, the advent of 15-minute spaces. Neighborhood hubs could replace some of the perks we miss by not commuting to an office. Now, they might contain gyms or bars or art galleries or offer networking opportunities. And they would be no more than a 15-minute walk from your home. Oh, no cars. Number three, the rise of cloud markets. Ghost kitchens, restaurants that solely deliver takeaway meals, exploded in popularity during lockdowns. These could morph into cloud markets. Analytics-driven services that license and deliver food to you from from a range of brands. Number four, you could be identified by your heartbeat. Facial recognition systems are often stumped by face masks. But your heartbeat is just as unique as your face. NASA has invented a system that can ID you from your heartbeat using a laser. Number five, digital technology will change the way children learn. While homeschooling was challenging for many families, it also had benefits for those with access to digital tools. Children could learn at their own pace while improving their digital skills. Education in the future could become a hybrid of school and home-based learning, combining the best of both worlds. What pandemic-era changes would you like to become permanent? This is the World Economic Forum asking these questions. And by the way, you know, it's, it's a cheery-looking video. It really, I mean, people, nobody's sad. Nobody's, you know, trudging off to the camps to, you know, to melt metal to make tanks. They all look like they're pretty well-adjusted, but holy cow. Some of those changes. And when it talks about the best of both worlds in, in terms of, you know, school and home, Somehow, I don't think that uh, it's really embracing the best of homeschooling or, you know, freeing your child from the education bureaucracy. I think it sounds more like, uh, I don't know, maybe they're they're looking at uh, this will be a good way to get us into people's homes. To have some oversight on what those kids are being taught at home. Crazy. But overwhelmingly, from this video... They make it clear they don't want you or your children to leave the house. You should work from home. Your children should learn from home. And these changes should be permanent. So offices will need to be repurposed. Entire neighborhoods will need to be redesigned. And if you do decide to go crazy and actually get out of the house to meet other people, well, those who know best would like it to be like reconnecting with colleagues or just meeting somewhere. With hand sanitizer and permanent masks. That's that's what's in the image, by the way, from the uh, from the video. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention everything is very very compliant with the masking and so forth. And they want to track you in the creepiest way possible. NASA has invented a system that can ID you from your heartbeat using a laser. 
The author here says, I hate every word in this sentence. (laughs) I don't blame him. According to the World Economic Forum, masks will be a permanent thing. And because of that, their precious face recognition systems won't work as well. So what's the solution? Ah, stop with the masks because the pandemics are temporary. No, no, no. How about shoot lasers right at our hearts, listen to our heartbeats, to ideas? Stop with the masks, stop tracking of individuals. Are you crazy? We just want to keep track of you some other way. And they're also laser-focused on our children. They want to shape and mold them according to their dystopian principles. And for this reason, they promote permanent remote learning on screens. Now, although remote learning has been nothing less than disastrous for the development and mental well-being of children, the World Economic Forum wants it to become permanent. And then to sell that insane idea, they claim, well, this will improve your kids' digital skills. The author of this article from VigilantCitizen.com says, this is the weakest argument I've ever heard regarding anything in my life. Children today do not need to learn how to improve their digital skills. They need to learn how to use phones and tablets, or they do learn how to use phones and tablets before they actually learn to walk. If anything, we need to scale back their digital skills by a couple of notches and boost their go-outside-and-get-dirty skills. The World Economic Forum knows very well Kids need to play, to socialize, and communicate with other children in order to develop properly. But it looks like they don't really want children to develop properly. That's the scary, terrifying truth about their agenda. They're looking to deny vital elements of a child's development in order to create the kind of human being they want living in their dystopian society. Now, just like the other videos previously released, this one was received with universal disgust. I like this response. All I see in this video is more control, endless use of masks, less freedom, and less social contact. If this is the change you uh, try to depict as a positive thing, I hope you'll take a good long look in the mirror and think for yourself if this really is the life. So, I'll have a link to this on the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't know, maybe you see it as a positive thing. Maybe I'm just looking at this from the wrong angle. But it sure seems to denote that somebody knows what's best. I just don't know if I want to live in a joyless, freedomless world where everything that makes life worth living is banned. Masks and hand sanitizer everywhere. Stay in your home. And we'll extract whatever we need from you via technology. Just doesn't have the appeal to me that uh, that regular life did. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you or someone you love is, let's say, fleeing from a population center along the West Coast. Just hypothetically, they want to get out. Maybe Antifa doesn't uh, do it for you. (laughs) Maybe you're just tired of all the big brotherism. But you decide you want to go to where, you want to go to a place where there is some freedom. And the Intermountain West seems to be that place, and I guess the real estate market seems to bear this out. This is where a lot of people want to be. Can't really say that I blame them. 
But the trouble is, it is hard to find a home because they don't stay on the market. The competition is very fierce. What this means is you got to have your financing squared away before you find that dream home. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in because Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry, clearly understands the ins and outs of what the lender needs, what the borrower needs. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386-Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call 435-703-4522 or you can see her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Might even want to drop her a note. There's an email link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Be worth your while to tell her, hey, I heard your message because I was listening to Brian's show. Let's talk about wisdom. And then first we have to distinguish wisdom from knowledge. Knowledge is good. Knowledge can apply. But sometimes knowledge becomes obsolete. There's a reason we don't, uh, you know, bleed people anymore when they have a fever. Because we have found that uh, there were things that superseded the knowledge. That, yes, 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 this is the best thing to do. Let's uh, bleed him, apply some more leeches, and he'll be up and around in no time. Wisdom, on the other hand, is something that remains applicable in all times and places. And it's because wisdom is based in human nature. Now, one of the things that we might draw upon, seeing as we live in a time where uh, there's, there's an increasing sense of crisis, how might we respond? And the good news is that there are people who've written about this. In fact, uh, Thomas Paine wrote about it in 1776. There really is nothing new under the sun. This is uh, an essay called The Crisis by Thomas Paine, published December 23rd, 1776. Some of this is going to sound familiar to you. Thomas Paine said, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. He wrote, Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. He said, heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Now, we're going to substitute a couple of words here. Instead of Britain, we're going to say globo cap. (laughs) In other words, those who know best and are trying right now to assert control. Global cap with an army to enforce her tyranny has declared that she has a right to not only jab but to bind us in all cases whatsoever, and if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then there is not such a thing as slavery upon earth. Even the expression is impious, impious rather, for so unlimited a power can belong only to God. Thomas Paine wrote, I have as little superstition in me as any man living, but my secret opinion has ever been and still is that God Almighty will not give a people up will not give up a people to military destruction or leave them unsupportedly to perish who have so earnestly and so repeatedly sought to avoid the calamities of war by every decent method which wisdom could invent. Neither have I so much of the infidel in me as to suppose that he has relinquished the government of the world and given us up to the care of devils. It is surprising to see how rapidly a panic will sometimes run through a country. All nations and ages have been subject to them. 
Yet panics, in some cases, have their uses. They produce as much good as hurt. Their duration is always short. Their mind soon grow, the mind soon grows through them and acquires a firmer habit than before. But their peculiar advantage is that they are the touchstones of sincerity and hypocrisy and bring things and men to light, which otherwise might have lain forever undiscovered. Thomas Paine wrote, In fact, they have the same effect upon secret traitors, which an imaginary apparition would have upon a private murderer. They sift out the hidden thoughts of man and hold them up in public to the world. He says there are cases which cannot be overdone by language, and this is one. There are persons, too, who see not the full extent of the evil which threatens them. They solace themselves with the hopes that the enemy, if he succeed, will be merciful. But Thomas Paine said it is the madness of folly to expect mercy from those who have refused to do justice. And even mercy, where conquest is the object, is only a trick of war. The cunning of the fox is as murderous as the violence of the wolf. and We ought to guard equally against both. He says, by perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils, a ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope. Look on this picture and weep over it. And if there, re- if there yet remains one thoughtless wretch who believes it not, let him suffer it unlamented. Conclusion, I thank God that I fear not. I see no real cause for fear. I know our situation well and can see the way out of it. And the bionic mosquito, which published this this crisis from Thomas Paine, finishes with four verses of Scripture. Now, I didn't invite you to come to Sunday school here, but I want you to hear these verses of Scripture, if nothing else, just for the reassurance that, again, wisdom transcends time, and place. It applies at all times and in all places. This is from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Deuteronomy 31 and 6. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that go that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And finally, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I don't know, reading an old, you know, reading a pamphlet from the Revolutionary War. Some people may say, oh, that's very quaint. Yes. <laughs> uh, but what, what applicable, you know, use does that have for our time? Well, you need to think a little bit about uh, the, the prospect of what faced the American people in December of 1776. It was in no way written in stone that their little revolution against the king and their their secession from the mother government was going to succeed. In fact, on paper, everything was stacked against them. 
the King of England commanded the largest, most advanced, most well-funded, well-trained army in the world. There's no way they could have prevailed. And yet, with moral clarity, in their own words, with a firm reliance upon divine providence, meaning God's plan for them, they did. Now, there's a message in there that goes beyond just simply, let's thump the Bible and say amen. If God could deliver them in their time of trouble, why could he not deliver us in our time of trouble? And for that matter, how did they approach the situation that we might also learn from their example? Just a couple of things running through my mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. This is my friend Kendall Whiting, and uh, I I love the fact that he has this food storage program, and it's it's very accessible. You click on the link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, and you can see it's not a one size fits all kind of thing. A lot of people get intimidated if they haven't if they don't have an existing food storage program, they're blown away by the idea of how could I possibly put away enough food to last me and you know however many family members you know for a year or maybe even longer. Even people who have a food storage program understand it takes time. It takes consistency to build up those stores. But I'm going to ask you this question, you know, when is the best time to start? And the answer is pretty much the same as the answer to the question, when is the best time to plant a tree? The answer is 25 years ago. So if you haven't been actively building your food storage program for the last 25 years, or even if you have, Chances are pretty good that, uh, you know, you have some gaps or things you have rotated in or out, or maybe there are some things that just are no longer um, viable to use, so you need to replace them. I'd ask you to please give a chance to lifesavingfood.com. They've got uh, packages that will fit any budget, any family size, any person's, uh, you know, readiness to, to dive into food storage or just to fill in some gaps in their own plan. And when you mention the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout, they'll take 10% off your purchase. So it'll save you some money and you'll have some peace of mind to go along with it. So I'm going to include a, a very special bonus in the show notes today for people who are serious about stocking up on intellectual ammo regarding the public health mandates. And I, I know that some people will feel like, well, you know, this is a losing battle. We People had the chance, you know, to, to stop these lockdowns from coming back and the mask mandates. And, you know, we see this playing out in, in school rooms and in school board meetings and businesses. And now there's talk of, well, we're trying to decide if the government has the power and the authority, the legitimate authority to force people to get the vaccination. I know it, it seems like it's been going on for a long time. It's intensifying. And, you know, the people who had a chance to stand up, that would be common folks like you and me. Some did, but not enough have. And clearly those who are in power, those who know best, are really pushing for we've got to lock this down now. 
We've got to take control and make it stick. And that's a scary prospect. Well, the American Institute for Economic Research has been one of the leading um, organizations, institutions, if you will, in in tracking what exactly is being accomplished by these various COVID-19 mandates. And they don't take this from a partisan point of view. They're not anti-vax. I mean, look, any any label you want to apply to try to marginalize them, well, these are anti-vaxxers. These are, these are right-wing reactionaries. They're Trumpers. Nope. These are economists. These are analysts. These are people who do very well at crunching numbers and, and seeing what does the data tell us. And I guess, you know, you shouldn't be too surprised if, I guess, if all of your information has come to you primarily through mainstream sources, maybe you'd be surprised. I'm not shocked to find that the American Institute for Economic Research has been one of the leading voices of reason on how to approach battling this pandemic. Because no matter how you slice it, we have many, many years of experience in watching how to deal with pandemic. There's public health law and public health policy that has been in place for a long time. People don't realize Woodstock took place during a pandemic. I believe it was the Hong Kong flu. There was an earlier pandemic, like 10 years before that. And again, they dealt with that. But it wasn't done by shutting everything down, declaring this person non-essential or this job non-essential and telling them, you know, you can't work. We didn't do it by putting masks on people. We didn't do it by by letting people in power assume control over virtually every aspect of our lives. And we certainly didn't do it by scaring ourselves to death with fear porn 24-7. So what's happened in the last year and a half has been a pretty radical departure from what came before. And again, it was AIER and Jeffrey Tucker who let out and said, and, and the reason that they did what they did, those in power, was based upon a 2006 experiment, I believe by a high school student, that uh, was, was wargaming and doing a simulation of, well, what if we had a really serious pandemic? How could we possibly handle this? In other words, it wasn't based on real world experience. But here we are. And now we've got uh, the Delta variant, and now we're hearing that, uh, oh, no, look, the, the uh, vaccine's not as effective as we thought it would be. I mean, they're already talking in, in the nation of Israel, which is one of the most vaccinated countries on the face of the earth. They're already talking about how the people who have received both doses, in other words, we would call them fully vaccinated, but very soon they will be considered Unvaccinated, They will become second-class citizens, much as the unvaccinated are, are slowly becoming second-class citizens here in America, simply because they've got to have a booster. Joe Biden and Anthony Fauci were talking about uh, boosters being needed every five months moving forward. And if you're one of those people who's, you know, gone out and got the vaccine, I don't know. I'm not telling you you should have, you know, should have buyer's regret or, or anything like that. But you got to be wondering at some point, well, wait a minute, why did I get this? If I still have to mask up. I still have to socially distance. I'm still being treated like cattle every time I go to get on a plane or whatever. I thought the vaccine was supposed to open the door to life returning to normal. Now, apparently that wasn't the plan. And apparently it may have never been the plan. 
So what I have for you, and this is included in today's show notes, is a marvelous, comprehensive, well-sourced explanation of why COVID-19 mandates will not work for the Delta variant. Now, I will tell you right now, this is a, this is a lengthy piece, but it's lengthy because it is extremely well-sourced. I'm not kidding. On, on certain issues, I mean, I'm looking at the footnotes here. Okay, he's, he's got footnotes. This is from uh, an author by the name of Paul Alexander. But when he tells you that, uh, you know, this is, this is the study that we looked at. We looked at uh, lockdowns and found about the, the, about the catastrophic harms or consequences and failures of lockdowns. I'm looking at 88 different footnotes. So if you want to crunch the numbers, you want to look at this yourself, you want to verify, have at it. It's, it's a very lengthy essay, but it is rich in details, rich in documentation, and it comes to the conclusion that all of these mandates, what Australia's doing, what's being proposed here, does not work for the Delta variant. What it does work for is bringing a new and stronger form of authoritarianism into being than we have seen before in our lives. And this is, I'll just share with you, these are, these are the final words of, of this essay. We are hearing discussions now about renewed lockdowns and masking, etc., due to the Delta variant, which emerged as one of the weakest in terms of lethality, while being very transmissible. Now, this greatly concerns us. We're horrified by this prospect. We've shown you the actual data as it relates to Delta, not the contrived drivel and unscientific nonsense spouted by the mainstream media and the public health experts. There is absolutely no reason, no good reason, to re-enter lockdowns and school closures or masking in response to the Delta variant. We find no evidence that this variant warrants masks in children. And Paul Alexander says, we leave you with the words of Donald Henderson. Experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. And if either is seen to be less than optimal, a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. So I'm including this as an added bonus, and this I understand not everybody's going to have time to sit down and read this and follow through on all of those footnotes. I mean, it's, it's a very comprehensive paper. But if you're one of those people for whom, you know, I want to know for myself, I don't want to live on borrowed light, here's your opportunity. Check it out in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I mean, you could, you could spend a couple of weeks going over this paper and probably still not cover everything that it contains. But that's a good thing, right? You want to come from a position of knowledge rather than just the superficial, right, I parrot everything that I hear. Because <laughs> there's a lot of folks that are content to do that. Don't be one of those folks. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our final segment right after this. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I trust I haven't given you too much fear because that can uh, interfere with one's digestion and everything, but I swear it is so hard every day to to look at all the various uh, stories and the various angles to approach what's going on around us and and to to try to find the ones that that actually matter, but uh, there are hard facts to be faced. And and just please understand, my goal is not to get people worked up into a condition where they're just absolutely panicked and going, oh man, this is so much worse than we thought. It's bad. Okay, I'm not going to try and minimize it or sugarcoat it and tell you that, oh, yeah, you know, this is, ain't no thing. Yeah, we're good. It's bad. But the solutions that we're looking for are not likely to come from the top down. So I guess if there's anything that should bring you comfort, it's that you and I probably have greater control over how we react and how we allow this to influence us than we realize. And as I said in the other hour of the show, if if you have to unplug from time to time to kind of find that equilibrium and get your feet back under you, by all means, do it. If that means turning off this program, then do it. I'll still be here when you come back. I'll still love you, but we, we've, we've got to approach it more from an individual standpoint. And I love those people who, when, when confronted with the reality of, man, you know, there are people who are seriously trying to fit me for a straitjacket, a, a you know, figurative straitjacket, take my liberties, take my choices, you know, indoctrinate my kids into this mindset of, of servitude. There's got to be something I can do about it. And some people have risen to the occasion. I look at my friend Eric Mutzos, and, and whatever you may think of Eric, i got to tell you, that guy is someone who has, uh, has heard a calling in his life and answered that calling. And I personally look at what he's been able to accomplish and the, the good that he's been able to do, and I think that's what happens. When a person, you know, feels that sense of calling and acts on it and, and partners with God, help me find the way to do the best with what I've got to work with, you better believe God will magnify your influence. And I think Eric's a perfect example of this. So there's an article on today's LouRockwell.com. This is from Dr. Joseph Mercola. Now, that, may, that name may be familiar to you. If it's not, I think it should be, only because uh, Dr. Mercola is very much under attack for being one of those voices of dissent against the technocratic, you know, apparatus. But he has an article here called, Will You Love Your Servitude? And this, again, points us back to there's a choice that each one of us gets to make as to whether or not we will or will not go along with what is being foisted on us by those who know best. He starts by citing Aldous Huxley, an English writer and philosopher who wrote nearly 50 books, the most famous being Brave New World, a dystopian science fiction novel published back in 1932. Now, the world in the novel is a futuristic one based on science and technology, Emotions and the sense of individuality are eliminated starting in childhood via the use of conditioning. Now, this is a work of fiction, but the concepts on which it's based, including the power to condition humans to accept an abnormal state of life, are not. And there's a terrific video 
that is linked in this article, which which can show you what this means. It's uh, it's Love Your Servitude, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, comparing the two of them. And you actually get to hear a 1962 interview with Huxley in which he speaks about the use of persuasion and conditioning to gain ultimate power and control over society. One of the things he said is if you're going to control a population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. File that away. That means nobody can enslave you without you saying okay and going along with it. Frederick Douglass once said, How, when a slave becomes a happy slave, he's effectively relinquished all that makes him human. How does a human being get to the point of loving servitude? Asked Dr. Mercola. Or consenting to live in or even enjoy a state of affairs that they should not? The answer is often it's through techniques of terrorism. And while the word implies violence, some of the most profound and dangerous techniques combine methods of terror with methods of acceptance. That's according to Huxley. By bringing in elements of persuasion, it's possible for a controlling oligarchy to get people to love their servitude. In 1957, William Sargent published Battle for the Mind, which delves into the techniques used by evangelists, psychiatrists, and politicians to change beliefs and behavior. Religious leaders produce conversions, Huxley said, by heightening psychological stress, talking about hell, then releasing this stress by offering a promise of heaven. Prisoners of war can be similarly brainwashed and pressured into making admissions of guilt. Now, Pavlov's dog study is one of the most well-known displays of the power of conditioning. His dog salivated not only in response to food, but in response to any object or event that they learned to associate with food, namely the ringing of a bell. And these findings also apply to humans who can be conditioned to associate abstract images with food, as shown by researchers with the Welcome Department of Neuroimaging Science at University College London. When shown pictures of food-associated images, their reaction times increased, and areas of their brains and their brain involved in motivation and emotional processes were activated. After Pavlov's demonstration of classical conditioning, the profound observations sunk into the creature, Huxley said, and Pavlovian methods were recognized as tools that could be applied with extraordinary efficiency, creating armies of totally devoted people. Man, just sit back for a second and consider how that has played out in terms of how people think about masking, think about vaccinations, think about the unvaccinated. There are people who are, uh, they're not just salivating, they are rabid, they're foaming at the mouth over these things because they have been conditioned to see the people who don't walk in lockstep with them as a threat. Yeah, it takes a little bit of time, but I can't argue with the effectiveness. It really looks like it's it's done well. Now, Dr. Mercola talks about how ultimate power involves voluntary acceptance. He says non-terroristic methods are also essential in gaining ultimate control, as some measure of voluntary acceptance is necessary. Suggestion and hypnosis are two examples. According to Huxley, about 20% of people are easily hypnotized, while 20% are very difficult, if not impossible, to hypnotize. The remaining 60%, meaning the majority, can be gradually hypnotized if you work hard enough at it. Now, similar figures apply to the power of placebo or suggestion, Huxley said, referring to a study on the administration of morphine or a placebo following surgery. The subjects were experiencing similar levels of pain and were able to receive injections for pain relief whenever requested. 
Half the injections were morphine, half were distilled water, the placebo. While 20% of the subjects got just as much pain relief from the placebo as the morphine, 20% got no relief from the placebo, and 60% got some or occasional relief from the placebo. Why are these studies important? Well, because it isn't hard to figure out which segment of the population is extremely vulnerable to suggestion and which is in the intermediate space. As Huxley pointed out, such differences allow for organized society to exist because if everyone were unsuggestible, there would be no order to society. At the other end of the spectrum, if everyone were highly suggestible, dictatorship would be inevitable. So having the majority of the people in the moderately suggestible category is a happy medium, allowing for the formation and preservation of organized society. In fact, he points out Hitler understood human weaknesses and exploited them. For instance, knowing that conditioning is easier when people are tired, when did he hold all of his big speeches? At night! So people would be less capable of resisting persuasion because they were tired. Now, he goes on to talk about the 1962 infamous experiment by Yale University psychologist Stanley Milgram, testing the limits of human obedience to authority. Now, that experiment was later criticized as being unethical, but it confirmed, in accordance with other studies that were very similar, that people will willingly and blindly obey authoritarian orders if they feel disconnected from their actions. Someone standing there in a lab coat saying, the experiment must continue, is enough for people to say, okay, well, I have permission. And they, they go along with it. He talks about uh, the, uh, the refrain from the World Economic Forum, you'll own nothing and, and like it. We're being conditioned to think in this way. It's a very powerful article here from Dr. Joseph Mercola. I uh, strongly recommend you take a look at it. If nothing else, it should open your eyes to when someone is trying to condition you to uh, do something that maybe you wouldn't otherwise do. Now, listen, if you have comments, I want to get your feedback. Could you please write your comments on a $20 bill? Send it to me via... Okay, no, that conditioning wasn't going to work, was it? Actually, I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You can either send me a written comment if you're feeling froggy. You can actually send me a voicemail comment. I get enough of these, I'll start using them on the show, but uh, I would like to hear from you, because every so often I need to be reminded, lest I get a little too full of myself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.